All right, we've come to chapter 2, and we want to look at the first five verses today. So let's get the text in front of us as I read from the New American Standard. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, we want to begin with the map of the Colossian situation once again. It's the same map that we used in the first lesson on this book, The Geography of the Lycus River Valley, from the book by Edwin Yamauchi. And you notice once more that river flows between the tri-cities of this region of Phrygia in Asia Minor. Now, we're reminding ourselves of the geographical locale again, looking at that very same map that we looked at several weeks ago again, because verse 1 of chapter 2 mentions... Laodicea, which you will observe is west of Colossae. In that first verse, Paul uses the phrase, all those, all those who have not seen me face to face. Now, that applies to the Colossians. And by reason of this verse, we now know it applies to the Laodiceans. Neither the Colossians nor Laodiceans have met Paul in person. I've used the expression face-to-face. The Greek here literally translated means seen my face in the flesh. So we're putting a little bit of an idiomatic reflection on it in order to make the point. Now, let's turn ahead to chapter 4 for a moment. And let's look at verse 13. Now, I'm asking you as you look at chapter 4, 13, how does that passage add to this discussion of geography? or of locale. Mentions Hierapolis. Very good. All right, now notice how it mentions Hierapolis. It mentions Hierapolis in conjunction with Laodicea. In chapter 2, verse 1, Laodicea is mentioned in conjunction with 
implicitly understood Colossae. Very good. All right. Now, my point here is to note that as Colossae was joined with Laodicea in verse 1 of chapter 2, and here in chapter 4, Laodicea is joined with Hierapolis in the same letter to the Colossians, understand, okay? This is a letter to the church at Colossae. We conclude that Paul is describing by this geography that he has a relationship with the three cities. The three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, the three cities of the Lycus River Valley. Well, if it is not a face-to-face relationship, what kind of relationship is it that he has with the Tri-Cities? It's a literary relationship. It's an epistolary relationship. It's a relationship by means of the letters that he is writing. And we'll take a moment to look at another suggestion a little bit later. Because in verse 16 of this fourth chapter, he says that he's written another letter. To whom has he written that letter? No. Chapter 4, verse 16. He wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, which they, you'll notice in that verse, are permitted to share with the Colossians as well as presumably with the church at Hierapolis. All right, so the map that you have is pointing out that there is an interrelationship geographically between these three cities, but the epistle to Colossae is pointing out that there is a relationship with respect to ecclesiastical relation and fellowship between these three cities. These three cities have congregations. They have congregations that undoubtedly were launched by Epaphras, who is mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 1, and consequently Epaphras being with Paul in Rome now, he has brought news to the apostle of what's going on in the tri-cities. And that's the reason we have these notations here in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. Paul is binding himself to the churches in these three cities through his in Christ story and their reciprocal narrative interface, their in Christ story, which mirrors his. We have emphasized this dramatic element of the narrative interface of the apostles' comments to the Colossians. He's drawing them into his story which is the story of Paul in Christ, in union with Jesus the Savior. That is in the background here with respect to the epistles he's writing, not only to Colossae, which will be shared with the Laodiceans, but to the epistle to the Laodiceans, which will be shared with the Colossians and with Hierapolis, presumably because of the relationship 
in verse 13 between Laodicea and Hierapolis. All right, now, this letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans, it has not survived. So therefore, we've been robbed of some inspired scripture because it has not been preserved. True? False? You're alarmed at that because you don't have this letter to the Laodiceans? Everything Paul writes is inspired. Everything Paul writes is inspired? That's a good question. So we don't have it because it wasn't inspired? Well, we'll hold on to that. This is a furious academic debate. And in fact, there have been apocryphal letters of Paul to Laodicea, which have been uh, 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 promoted and uh, presented, all of which have no basis in fact. But nonetheless, this is an interesting sidelight question. Is our canon incomplete because we don't have Paul's letter to the Laodiceans? We'll hold that. I'll look for a little bit more, for a little uh, further discussion. All right, now let's take a look at the issue of structure in these first five verses of chapter 2. And we begin with the connection of this section with the preceding unit of the epistle. The last and final unit of chapter 1 is verses 24 to 29. Do you note any connection between verse 1 and verse 29? Very good. Notice the verb striving, which is actually a participle there in verse 29, and the word struggle, which is a noun in verse 1 of chapter 2. Those are cognates, that is, they are Greek words that come from the same root. So these are reflective cognates. He's tied the end of 29 with the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 2. That's a hook pattern. He hooks together the conclusion of the one unit and the inception of the succeeding unit by a word that has the very same root base, whether it's a verb in the one case or a noun in the other. All right, is there any other connection that you notice there besides the cognate or the hook pattern between striving and struggle? Is there anything else that ties his argument or his narrative together. Art? Very good. We've been looking at pronouns as we move to the first chapter. We're not going to forget the pronouns when we come to chapter 2, at least not immediately, because he lays it out again. He uses the first person singular personal pronoun, I, as he had ended with that first person personal pronoun in verse 29. Now, This emphasis upon his personal identity is not in order to promote himself. It is in order 
to make what is called direct address to his reading audience. He is directly addressing those in Colossae when he uses that first person personal pronoun. Now think about that. He is directly addressing the situation experienced by all three churches of the Lycus River Valley because this letter is going to make its way around to those three churches and he is saying something in this letter which is peculiar or <coughs> is <coughs> related to these three churches. Now, if that is the case, simply because he's mentioned the three cities which <coughs> have three churches in them, that that is the case, then he's directly addressing a situation experienced by all those three churches in the Lycus Valley through this epistle, through this letter to the Colossians, which is going to circulate amongst those three congregations. Now, that being the case, it allows us to reasonably assume, it allows us to reasonably assume that the experience and situation of the Colossians, this letter which we do have, is essentially parallel to the situation and experience of the Laodiceans, the letter we do not have, and by implication, the Hierapolis Christians as well. In other words, this preserved letter suffices for the missing letter. What we have here in Colossians is in essence what he was also writing in that epistle to the Laodiceans and was seen by the church in Hierapolis. So you've not missed out on anything because what was missing in the letter of the Laodiceans is, in my opinion, implicit in the letter to the Colossians. All three churches are facing the same situation and challenges. And so this letter suffices for all three, and that's the reason it has been providentially preserved, and the other one was not, whether it was inspired or not. You have all that is sufficient for your understanding of the revelation of God in Christ through his apostolic witness, namely the Apostle Paul. You have all that is necessary in his corpus in the epistles that the Holy Spirit has preserved as well as inspired. So I'm not bothered by these appeals that we have something missing. It's all here. It's in this letter to the Colossians. In essence, what he said to the Laodiceans, he has said to the Colossian Christians as well. All right, now, there is a small chiasm here in these first five verses. So let's, uh, let's see if you can fill in the blanks in your handout. I've given you the beginning clues. You see the word for which begins even in the English translation, it's the Greek word gar. <clears throat> it stands first in the positive position in the first verse in the Greek text. <clears throat> but the uh, word for, it begins verse 1. And then <clears throat> there's another Greek word translated that, which begins verse 2. That uh, <clears throat> Greek word is hina, 
and it can mean that or so that or in order that has a variety of uh, appropriate translations. <clears throat> do you see uh, <clears throat> do you see those words anywhere else in these first five verses? Keeping in mind that a chiasm is a mirror reflection of itself. So what do you see in verse 5? You see 4 again, yes, and it's the Greek word gar once again. So <clears throat> there's the <clears throat> flip side of verse 1. A chiasm is also a reverse paradigm, antithetical paradigm. We'll point that out a little bit later. <clears throat> what do you see in verse 4? That, and once again, it is the Greek word hina, could be translated that or so that or in order that. So it lines up with verse 2 as 4 lines up with verse 1. And what's sandwiched in between? What's the hinge point of the chiasm? Okay, uh, who who is in whom? Who's the whom? Christ is the whom, and what is what is significant about Christ according to verse three? Yes, all the treasures are hidden. Uh, the hidden treasures in Christ is the pivot point of the chiasm. <clears throat> all right, so he moves from a statement a direct address statement to the Colossians for dot, dot, dot. And then he, he indicates a so that condition or an order that condition, verse 2. He comes then to the center of his focus in this direct address, namely the treasures hidden in Christ, the mystery of God. And then he moves to another so that, in order that de- declaration, and concludes with a four once more at the end of, at the beginning of chapter five. This is a reverse paradigm. This is a reflected paradigm. In fact, it's an antithetical paradigm, and I'll <clears throat> go into that in detail uh, later on, but I want you to see how it falls out, because even in your English translation, you can pick out the replications But the replications are direct address in chiastic reverse style, centered, hinged, pivoting upon those treasures which are hidden in Christ in God. But Paul is not face to face with these believers as we know, because he's where? He's in prison in Rome, and we also know that, as Bob spontaneously responded. So, what is the struggle, verse 1, what is the struggle that he is in? What is this struggle on their behalf? It is a struggle in which he joins himself to the narrative of their struggle which is to know more deeply the mystery of God, verse 2, 
which is Christ himself, also, verse 2, and all the treasures hidden in him, verse 3. Now, I'm placing a narrative spin upon this struggle because Paul is striving in his own narrative biography to deflect them and protect them from the insidious anti-narrative. He knows about that anti-narrative. He's been informed about that anti-narrative. He knows about this narrative, which is in opposition to what these Colossians have been taught by Epaphras. He knows what's going on there because he's been informed. And now he wants them to know that he's identified with their struggle as if he were there in person. Though he is far away in a Roman prison, or at least under house arrest in a Roman domicile. Notice this way in which the apostle identifies and participates in himself with his own struggles as a mirror of theirs, their struggles a mirror of his. And this anti-narrative which is abroad within their circles. And that's the circles of all three churches in the Tri-Cities. This anti-narrative, he is wanting to dissuade them from being deluded by it with, as the King James says in the translation of verse 4, enticing words, persuasive arguments, as the New American Standard says. I like the King James better here because enticement is exactly what this anti-narrative is about. The clash now. We have not begun to penetrate that, but the clash now between the competing narratives, the narrative which is the narrative of the risen Christ, which is the narrative of the redeemed and transformed Paul, which is the narrative of the Colossian Christians by way of Epaphras, that clash is now threatened by an anti-narrative, a different story, a different identity. Now, we have to hold on what that different story is, that anti-narrative. We have to hold for a while We'll tell you a little bit more later today, but we have to hold for the details as we get further into this second chapter. All right, now, let's step back and remind ourselves of the broader context. Paul has drawn himself into the narrative of the ongoing sufferings of Christ what we labeled last time the extensive, the extensive aspect of Christ's suffering in the ongoing sufferings of Christians, those in Christ who possess Christ in them, verse 24 of chapter 1. And Paul has done this on their behalf, for their sake even in their place. 
Here, in chapter 2, verse 1, he struggles or strives on their behalf. Notice that expression again, bearing the narrative of their struggles in his narrative in spirit, as he says in verse 5. All this is signaled. All of this language of identification and participation All of this is signaled by this beautiful, ingratiating, this wonderfully solicitous statement, I want you to know. I want you to know invitation, drawing them, the Colossians, cordially, gently, winsomely into his own world of struggles and suffering for the sake of Christ and the body of Christ. Notice how he does this. Notice the persuasive rhetoric of the apostle. I want you to know. I wish that you would know. He draws them into his circle. He draws them into his own narrative. He draws them into his own situation. Even as reciprocally, he's drawing himself into theirs by the reports that he has heard from Epaphras and Onesimus and perhaps others. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4.10, bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That is an astounding statement of union with Christ. An astounding statement of language, of identity and participation in bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our body. It is this notion, it is this conception of Paul's union with Christ which is behind is striving and struggling on behalf of the Colossians and the Laodiceans and the Christians in Hierapolis. This is a remarkable and astounding, as I said, (coughs) expression of the interface between the narrative of Christ's dying body and the life of the body of Paul and believers. Verse 2, here he details what he strives for. He uses vocabulary here, which we need to note carefully. He uses the words hearts and understanding. Now, I'm going to put my own label on that vocabulary. I'm going to put categories or philosophical or psychological categories on that vocabulary. I am going to call hearts affective language, affective language, the affections, affections, and intellective categories on understanding, which includes knowledge as well as wisdom in this section. Categories of the affections 
the religious affections, the religious emotions of the heart, including love, passion, emotional delight. All that is behind or within or underneath this word hearts. And at the same time, categories of the mind, including the intellect, reason, and knowledge, heart and mind in relation here, mind and heart in relation here, love and intellect in harmonious interface, loving what the mind knows, knowing what the heart loves, all this which the heart loves, the affection of the soul, is focused on the hinge of the chiasm, Christ himself. All this which the mind understands, reason knows, is focused on the hinge of the chiasm, Christ himself. The wealth or riches which Paul presents to his Colossian readers is the intellectual wealth of knowing Christ himself as the wealth or riches which Paul presents to his Colossian readers here is the emotional affection of loving Christ himself. Heart and mind. Faculty of love, emotional affection, and faculty of reason, knowledge of understanding. These are inseparable. They are in relational harmony here because they cannot be divided. The Christian mind knows and understands from his intellect the story and the narrative of Jesus Christ. But the heart of that Christian believer loves with affection, drawn to emotional affection for what the mind knows and understands. You cannot have a bare intellectual understanding if you are a Christian believer without loving what your reason and understanding and intellect have come to know. This is knowledge that you love. This is understanding truth that you delight in, that you have an affection for. Even as you have an affection for your reason in relationship to what you know, your intellect in relationship to what you know, you love that intellectual understanding. It is not mere hair-brain theology. It is not egghead knowledge. This is the knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the knowledge of what your Savior did on your behalf. These are the hidden treasures of your knowledge, which you haven't even gotten to the bottom of, nor have I, nor have anyone else. So there is more for you to love. There is more treasure for you to dig out. There are more wealth and riches for you to possess. Through your mind, intellect, reason, and also through your heart, emotional center, and affection.
don't bifurcate your thinking, loving being. Don't split them apart as if they're two separate categories. They work in harmony. Your knowledge is unto your affection. Your affections are unto your knowing more. Paul wants this group of believers not only to know and understand, but he wants their hearts to love what they know and understand. And that understanding, loving heart, he wants to grow in knowledge, true knowledge. Notice what he says there, true knowledge, true knowledge and wisdom. You're not done. You're not finished. You've not plateaued. You cannot cruise. You can't anymore after today because Paul has told you you cannot do so. You must continue to know and understand and learn and grow in wisdom. And at the same time, you must continue to love with affection and passion what you understand and know and understand in wisdom. You stop and you are dead. You cruise and you are sliding, slipping away. You do not want to know anymore, though you're capable of knowing more, and you've grown presumptuous, as if you are full of all knowledge and understanding already, as if you can't cram more one more particle of affection for God in Christ by the Spirit into your loving heart. He is more infinite than your loving heart. Your heart can expand all the way to its limits and you'll still not possess him or or exhaust him. So, work on that. As the Spirit works on you. But here, please note, none of this radical separation between what the heart loves and what the mind knows. The mind is the inlet to the heart. The heart is the affection of the mind. They work harmoniously together. Keep them in proper balance and use them for the glory of God. In your own devotion, in your own study, in your own reading, in your own worship, in your own service, use them. For they are the treasures hidden with Christ in God. Now, with verse 3, we reach the chiastic center of Paul's direct address to his Colossian audience. The hidden treasures is the hinge point of his invitation. I want you to know my struggle for your heart of love and your mind of understanding for the hidden treasures of God's mystery. These treasures of riches and wealth 
are sandwiched between verses 1 and 2 and verses 4 and 5, as our structural chiastic paradigm indicates. What is the center of Paul's mini-structure of reason and affection? It is God's mystery, Christ himself, who is the treasure, the rich source of intellectual and emotional wealth. The mind, the understanding, reason, intellect, knowledge must find Christ as the treasure. The heart and affection and emotion and love must find Christ as the treasure. Christ, the chief treasure of the intellect. Christ, the chief treasure of the affections. All right, so we get that. But what on earth does Paul mean by saying it's hidden? It's hidden. Here he's talked about this interface and harmony between mind and reason, reason and love, heart and mind. Why does he say that these treasures are hidden? How can we know it if it's hidden? If it's in hiding, how do we find it? How do we love, how do we love what this is if it's hidden? How do we know? How do we reason about what this is? How does our intellect work with respect to what this is if it's hidden? The Judaism of Saul of Tarsus had an answer for those questions. The Judaism of Saul of Tarsus had an answer. The treasures of reason and the treasures of the emotions is the law. The law of God is the riches of eschatological blessing. How one keeps God's law in the horizon of history, in space and time, that will earn or merit eschatological riches at the end of history. Good works of the law, said Saul of Tarsus. Good works of the law equals good merits. These are the treasures of the eschatological age. Saul of Tarsus Judaism believed that the law of God was primary and the works of the law were worthy of eschatological reward. That is Jewish horizontalism. That is Jewish horizontalism. The hidden treasures are on the line of the horizon as the law of God goes all the way out to the end of the age. But the Christianity of Paul of Damascus had a different answer to what those hidden treasures are. The treasures of the reason and the treasures of the emotions are Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God is the riches of eschatological blessing. It's in a person. It's not in a legal system. It's in a person. It's not in a legal system. 
how one has been joined to the Son of God in the vertical intrusion of history out of space and time. That is what binds the eschatological riches in Christ Jesus to the one who is united with the eschatological person of the eschatological age. That coming into time and space, that intrusion of the Son of God into history, that vertical eruption onto the plane of history, that, that is where the treasures are hidden. It is in that one who did that thing. Paul of Damascus Christianity believes that the Son of God is primary and the works of the flesh are as dung. They are as dung in comparison to the surpassing excellence of the work done on behalf of the flesh in Christ received by faith, faith itself an eschatological treasure. Not Jewish horizontalism, but Christian verticalism. And it's still the essential difference between Judaism and Christianity. The vertical penetration of God into time and space history in the person of his son. There's where you begin to think about the hidden treasures. So we may dig out these hidden treasures with our reason and understanding as we love them, being emotionally passionate about them with all our hearts. And we'll do some digging after you take a break. Stretch and get some refreshments. Now I'm going to take the obverse or the negative. Namely, treasures not hidden since Christ has been revealed from heaven. These are the treasures of heaven. These are the riches of the eschaton. This is the wealth of an eschatological new creation. Jesus does not hide it. Jesus does not hide it. He shows and reveals it clearly in his supernatural works, and here I mean his miracles, and he shows and reveals it in his supernatural teaching, and here I'm referring to his parables. What hidden treasures are revealed in Christ's miracles? Let's think about that. Christ's miracles as an instance a specific instance of hidden treasures. Heaven, which he reveals, is a place of eschatological health for the lame and the blind and the deformed and the hemorrhaging, whose hemorrhage won't stop. In the eschaton of heaven, all these diseases are healed. Who healeth all thine diseases, passed away in the perfect physical wholeness. That is not hidden since Jesus came. 
Second, heaven is a place of eschatological life for the dead and the buried and the wrapped up in claws in their tombs. In the eschaton of heaven, life from the dead, life for the dead is present. Death and burial and entombment are passed away into perfect body, soul, resurrection, life. That's what's going on at Lazarus's tomb. That's what's going on in the widows of Nain's son. That's what's going on in Jairus' daughter's bedroom. That's what's going on even at that tomb in the garden. Third, heaven is a place of eschatological deliverance from the demon possession and enslavement by Satan and convulsion with the throes of devils. In the eschaton of heaven, Jesus casts out Satan. He binds the devils and demons and expels them, exorcises them from the sinner. In the eschaton, demon possession is perfectly passed away into no more bondage to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. In his miracles, Jesus reveals, he shows, he manifests the hidden life of the kingdom of heaven, the riches of that new creation world of health and life and demon-free existence. That's what those miracles show you. That is not a dimension any longer hidden from you. It has been openly displayed in his miraculously supernatural works. The hidden life of the kingdom of heaven revealed in Christ's miracles. The riches of that new creation world, health, life, no more demons. Since Jesus came and worked his miraculous wonders, we have had revealed hidden treasures of the eschatological age. But also, since Jesus came and taught his parables, we have had revealed the hidden treasures of the eschatological age, like a pearl of great price. Of such is the kingdom of heaven, like a lavish feast for a prodigal son. Of such is the kingdom of heaven, like a lost sheep, strayed from the ninety and nine, whom the good shepherd seeks and saves and carries home on his shoulders, rejoicing of such is the kingdom of heaven. Those parables that Jesus taught are revelations of the riches and treasures of the kingdom of heaven. The eschatological world now no longer hidden from the eyes of faith. What he did... And what he said, what he performed, and what he taught in miracle and parable are revelations to you, displays to you, manifestations to you. And the treasures of the eschatological world out of which he came and into which he returned and in which he operates. But even more, 
even more, we may dig out riches upon riches. We may excavate riches upon riches of these hidden treasures, as Paul has already written to his Colossian believing friends. We return to our own litany, the litany of the new creation world, which was revealed to us in chapter 1, verses 12 to 23. Do you not know and understand that world of light the saints inherit? Do you not love that world of light wherein there is no darkness? For there is no night there in that new creation world. Do you not love him who is the light of that world? In him there is no darkness, but light ineffable and everlasting. There is the light of your affection. He is the light on whom you set your affection and your understanding and your reason and your mind and your intellect. It is upon him in that kingdom of light of him who is the light of your world. Do you not know and understand the kingdom of the Son of the Father's love? Do you not love him whom the Father loves? Love him as the beloved Son? Is not your affection for God the Son a mirror of the affection of the Father's love for his Son? Are you not being drawn into that drama? There, in that kingdom of the Father's love for the Son, there is the one on whom you set your loving affection. That you would be counted worthy to understand, in part, the mystery of the affectionate love between God the Father and God the Son. Because you understand how he loved you and gave his Son for you in order that you might be drawn into the depth of the treasures and wealth and riches of that sublime loving relationship between the triune God and his son. Do you not know and understand the invisible image of the visible God who translated you out of bondage, redeeming your life, with the ransom of his own, taking your sins with the blood of his own? Do you not love this Redeemer who has paid your debt and set you free? Do you not love this one who forgives your sins, who is selfless affection for you, signed in his very own precious blood? There is the Redeemer your beloved ransom and release. There is your atonement, the loving Savior whom you love with blood sufficient for all your sins. There, even on that image of that blood-stained cross, there is your debt paid in full, debt 
canceled, debt cleared, debt removed and annulled once and for all. That's an eschatological treasure. And finally, do you not know and understand this firstborn from the dead, this beginning of the resurrection of the body-soul? Do you not love this one born again by resurrection from the dead? Is he not the object of your affection? Because as he is raised up from death to new resurrection life, so he raises you up from death to new resurrection life. There is your treasure. There is your resurrection treasure. There is your life, whom through, though you have not seen, yet you love him, for he has made you alive from the dead in his resurrection body soul. And not only has he made you alive now, but he promises you that you will be alive in the very same type of body soul that he possesses. You shall see him as he is, because you'll be raised up as he is. Body, soul, integrity, reunited and glorified. There is your treasure. Not hidden. Fully displayed on Easter Sunday morning for you to see. Yes, by faith. But the reality of it is there in display, full display in the history of redemption. Now, verse 4 has a parallel. I might say that we could go on with that litany of the new creation, which we detailed from chapter 1. But suffice it to say that you see that the hidden treasures are also related to all that imagery of the litany in chapter 1. Now, verse 4. It has a parallel, as we've already pointed out, that or so that or in order that which means which matches the same Greek word in verse two as we've also observed. Now there in verse two, notice that the that is that our hearts and minds may be encouraged. He uses an interesting Greek word here, parakleo, for encouraged. That word is the same word for paraclete, or related to the word paraclete, which is John's gospel word for the Holy Spirit. The paraclete, or the Holy Spirit, is an encourager, as indeed he is. But Paul wants them to be paracleted, encouraged here. Is he suggesting that there is some intimate relationship between his own encouragement and the encouragement that the Spirit himself brings. That he is, shall we say, like the Spirit encouraging the caution Christians. Oh, now there is a treasure deep and hidden. But I only raise the question. I don't answer the question. I'm intrigued by the vocabulary that he uses. Verse 2, our hearts encouraged. But here in verse 4, 
our hearts and minds may not be deluded. Not deluded. The antithesis. The antithesis between the that clause in verse 2 and the that clause in verse 4. Notice that antithesis, which is neatly apparent in archaism. Verse 2 is a positive so that, so that you may be encouraged. Verse 4 is a negative so that, an antithetical so that. What do we have here in chapter 2, verse 4? We have the first clear and explicit warning or admonition. Notice verse 28 of chapter 1. The first warning or admonition, which is an explicit warning and admonition of the danger which threatens the Colossians and by implication the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. All three churches of the Lycus River Valley threatened by something which may potentially delude them. Here, in verse 4 of chapter 2, the first explicit hint of the danger which is threatening the Christians of the Tri-Cities. Okay, Denison, what is it? What is it? He doesn't say in this verse what it is specifically, but what does he say? Notice, the threat or error which is attacking the Christians there is a delusion. That's explicit. And Paul admonishes the churches to beware of it as he is wary of it. Why is he wary of it? Because it's been reported to him. You think this apostle doesn't know the superstitions of Asia Minor in which he ministered by missionary journeys on three occasions? You think he's not aware of all of the idol cults that are abroad in Colossae and everywhere else, even though he's never been to Colossae? He saw it all in Ephesus. You think he's not aware of all the philosophical concepts which are broached about? He knows something about the Greek philosophers, as his Mars Hill address indicates. And they're poets. You think the Apostle Paul is not culturally aware? He's very much culturally aware. He knows all of the undercurrent paganism of that age as well as the Judaism of that era and of that uh, region. So, delusion is deception. Delusion means false knowledge, not true knowledge, verse 2. Notice true knowledge in verse 2. Delusion is false knowledge. Delusion is man's wisdom, not God's wisdom in Christ, verse 3 with verse 2. What it is specifically, Paul does not say at this point. We will grapple with his description later on in this second chapter. But, whatever it is, it deflects and detracts from the reality of the eschatological world of the new creation in the prototokos of creation with the prototokos from the dead, and I'm referring back to verse 15 and 18 of chapter 1. The firstborn. Something is at odds with that crucial description of Christ 
as the twofold firstborn. Firstborn of the new creation, firstborn from the dead. It is a threat, is this error, is this delusion. It is a threat which decentralizes Christ. Whatever it is, it is something that decentralizes Christ and the mystery hidden in him in God. That much we know. It is an anti-narrative against the centrality of Christ. The Colossian error is anti-Christocentric, as it is anti-eschatological. It is a horizontal, man-centered, this-world delusion. It is an anti-narrative, the opposite of the apostles' mirror narrative and Christo. All of those elements are present in this threat which is abroad in the Colossian community, in the Laodicean community, in the community at Hierapolis. This is a crisis. This is a crisis which has come upon the churches. And Paul is responding to the crisis. So that in verse 5, he says, Though I am absent in the body, I am present with you in spirit. A phrase that he uses in 1 Corinthians 5.3. There, in the 1 Corinthians passage, he has already exercised discipline on the fornicating uh, uh, boy or man in that congregation who was having sexual relationships with his mother. The incestuous relationship. This is not a disciplinary matter here, but notice this is strong language. This is Paul coming like Jesus is coming. Absent in the body, present in the spirit. That's how strongly he is interested in warning them about what is at stake. This is a crisis. And I should point out, whatever the error is, it is not the Galatian heresy. It is not recrudescent Judaism. It is not trying to be saved by the works of the law or even using the works of the law to complete the finished work of Christ. It is not that. Galatia is north of Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Yes, that region is north but that that error, that Judaistic error, has not crept down into this Lycus River Valley region, at least as far as we know. Otherwise, he would have been all over it here in this letter. He's not talking about the law and justification by works of the law. He's not talking about that in this letter at all. So this error is something other than the Galatian heresy. So scratch out the Judaistic Galatian heresy from Colossae. That's not it. And while I'm at it, don't try to preach Colossians as if it's Galatians. That's not it either. All right, so verse 5. This is language, I am absent from the body, present in the spirit, which is once again reflective of that profound nature of the union between Christ and the Apostle Paul. The profound union intimacy between Paul the Apostle and Christ the Son of God. That, <clears throat> that profundity begs for further penetration, for further digging, for further treasure hunting. And when I sit 
in my soft chair in my study and I ponder this thing, I begin to realize it's beyond me. This intimacy between Paul and Christ is beyond me. I struggle to sense its reality even as I struggle to realize my own pitiful unworthiness. It's not a matter of me measuring up to it. It's a matter of understanding the singular character of it with respect to this apostle, with respect to this Jew, with respect to this man stopped in his tracks. There's something so spectacular about him that it took the risen Christ out of his glorious arena to, to stop him dead and make him a Christ-united believer. No, that didn't happen to me and it didn't happen to you and it doesn't happen to Christians ordinarily. This is an unusual, extraordinary relationship between Paul and Jesus. Between this apostle and the Son of God. And yet, it intrigues the, con- it intrigues the mind, it intrigues the heart to think about why he uses this language which so consistently brings him into this intimate relationship with Christ. So intimate, like the bond of an inseparable union. Well, how is Paul present then? He says, I'm absent, but I'm present in the Spirit. How is he present? Through this letter. He's present to them through this letter. He is absent in Rome in prison, but he knows about this error as we've indicated. So has the error reached the point of causing the believing communities of Christians in the Tri-Cities to repudiate or to deflect from the true gospel? Has it reached that point? What do you think? Not yet. Not yet. That's right. What he's doing here is administering preventive medicine. He's not proceeded to life-saving surgery. Okay. We note two terms here, which are significant. Two terms in verse 5 by which he commends the Colossians' faith in Christ. They are both military terms. The Greek word taxis, which is translated good discipline by the New American Standard, and the Greek word stereoma, which is translated stability or steadfastness in the King James. Now, what is he commending? He is commending the set, he is commending that like a good military line of battle or defense, offense or defense, like a military line, that they are in good order, that their faith has got them in proper array, proper alignment. Namely, they're properly aligned with the narrative of Christ that Paul himself is properly aligned with. But this military imagery comes out of the fact that there was a military garrison at Colossae, 
Also the fact that there were military soldiers. The Roman soldiers marched on a road all the way from Ephesus into the, to the, the near east over into Parthia or Persia. That main road went by Colossae, and so there were soldiers present on those, way, on those highways at many times during the year, in addition to this bivouac that was at Colossae. All right, so like that good military rank and stature, you are in good order, but you are also steadfastly stable. That is, you are of such a good order in rank and, uh, and, and display that you are virtually invulnerable to attack. Look at what he's doing. He's pumping them up. He's pumping them up with commendation for the warfare that they're involved in. Once again, the reason for the military imagery. This is spiritual warfare. You're being threatened by an enemy. There is an attack on your flank or as a frontal attack on your center, uh, on your center ranks. So maintain that good order as you have it already. Maintain that steadfastness as you have it already. Keep up in this conflict. Keep up the strength that you have by faith in Christ that you have in the face of this conflict which is in your circles and on your horizon. Feeding into his struggling in Christ. For these Christian believers who are struggling in Christ in Colossae, feeding into that union is the key to standing in the face of delusion and deception and enticing argument. Outside of Christ, sinking sand. Outside of Christ, insufficient defense. But in Christ, steadfastness and good order and discipline. Maintain the lines. Maintain the faith. Maintain what you have learned in Christ. Maintain what you are in Christ. And do not be enticed or persuaded to walk away or to be deflected from that pivot point, that hinge point of your faith, the treasures of the mystery of God, which are Christ Jesus himself. Any questions or comments? that you have today. God speed you through Holy Week and beyond. Shall we close in prayer? We are amazed, Lord, at this extraordinary privilege and relation that Paul had with your dear son by the power of your spirit. And Father, as he came to be arrested by the knowledge and love of Christ, so we too, we too have been stomped from our formerly ways of the flesh by the knowledge and love of the Son of God, our Savior. 
we bless you for the litany of the new creation and for the riches that are in our beloved Lord. We bless you for the knowledge that he has granted to us through the revelation of Paul's letters and the whole scripture. We honor you and praise you with the thanks and gratitude of our heart for what your son displayed and taught when he was here and continues to reinforce by his spirit which illumines our minds upon the pages of spirit of the of the scriptures as we reflect and ponder upon them now lord in this season in which we remember his death and resurrection may we be more tightly bound to him in knowledge and affection may we be more wonderfully refreshed by him in knowledge and affection may we more firmly believe on him with strong lines of good order in our faith may we be more informed and trusting of him in knowledge and affection and to his name with yours in the spirit be all glory and honor for we do confess that we love you as we know you and we know you in order to love you the more in jesus name Amen.